Hello and welcome to this Sea Trade Maritime podcast. I'm Chris Heyman, Chairman of Sea Trade, and in this Learning from Leaders episode, I've been talking to V Group CEO Rene Koford Olsen. Rene is, of course, a leading figure in the marine services and ship management world with almost three decades in global shipping behind him. After many years with the AP Moller Mass Group, he comes to V Group with a seven-year position as CEO of Topaz Energy and Marine behind him, which culminated last year in its $1.1 billion sale to DP World. In our conversation, we covered a wide range of subjects, of course, the impact of the pandemic across the different industry sectors, including offshore marine and cruise and many others. And we also talked about its particular significance for crew welfare issues. We talked also about some of the structural changes that have already taken place and are likely to develop in years to come for the industry, corporatization, consolidation, and the move towards a fully integrated logistics system. And in all of that changing structural world, he talked about the role of the third-party ship manager and how it may develop in the future. I started by asking René to comment on the impact which this uniquely challenging operating environment from 2020 has had on the industry. I think 2020 has provided a unique set of challenges for the industry. And I think you need to turn to the early 20th century to see disruption probably on the same scale. People and companies have had to adapt extremely rapidly while governments sought to find sort of the right pathway between lockdowns and reasonableness in individual discipline from children to elders and everything in between. So for the global shipping industry and sort of the related infrastructures such as port, logistics, air transport, all of us have really been one of the key factors of stability. And if you think about it, in the key supply chains, and impressively so. I should spare the the listeners for any personal political opinions, but merely state that stability and an ability to forecast tomorrow probably could be an opportune wish here so close to Christmas. You're asking about sort of the main traits, and they all have different opportunities, and therefore also they, they will have a different set of challenges. And I probably would be too cumbersome to debate them all here in detail, but I think common for all, and we discussed that just before we went online, would be the road to zero carbon future, wherein fuel engines design importantly disrupted trade lanes and countries finding other sourcing patterns is probably going to be with us for a long, long time. We remain far from calling the end of fossil fuels. I know we will discuss that later, but I think the transformation is gaining very robust traction and you know, better technologies will come at hand. The willingness for the old and the new to learn from each other and coexist. I think this time has proven that that sort of permeating people and industries, we all need to find ways of maybe coexisting differently and be innovative around it. If we look at individual sectors for a moment, Rene, container shipping quite clearly is experiencing boom times 
I was in the port of Felixstowe last week and saw with my own eyes the build-up of traffic responding to future circumstances, the build-up for Christmas, the final push towards Brexit and people restocking for that. So the container business generally seems to be in pretty good shape at the moment. But I'd like to ask you to comment on two strands of the industry, which I know you know very well. First of all, offshore marine. Your experience is very extensive in the sector. Tell us what you see as the future for the offshore marine sector. The Stone Age didn't finish because we ran out of stones necessarily, and and the Oil Age now will not finish because we will run out of oil. So I think businesses and therefore people, countries will figure out how to best move in, I would like to, to say, a balanced sort of environment where fossil fuels will play a role, where renewables will, of course, be on a fast track because we all need that. I'll come back to that maybe later in our in our conversation, Chris. But I think offshore marine has sort of for a while stood in front of a transformational task where the short cycles became shorter, the financial ecosystem asked more questions about the sustainability of the business models and the very boom and bust situation with a lot of assets being enrolled in spot trading is not recipes for a sustainable future strategy. And I believe that the smart businesses have transformed and moved into closer relationship with their clients, with the partners of the trade, and work more towards a wholesome business value proposition for the oil and gas industry, while having a foot of curiosity or or direct business line into the renewable side of life. And, And I think those have been the smart companies. The other side of the coin are the companies that are not willing to adapt, are not willing to accept that we are moving into a different future where demand on all of us is different. So I think in the offshore sector, we'll have to deliver more for our clients. That doesn't mean that we should do it for less. I think there is a there is a vast amount of value creation that can happen, but we need to do it differently. And we probably need to encumber more tasks for the energy customers, I would like to say, not only fossil. I do believe that it's way too early to call an end to the fossil industry, and we need that as a bedrock for our global economy. But there has to be a good mix. And I think the oil companies know that and and are working with strategies. And I think the good service companies know that. And they should be working with the right strategies. Looking at the price of oil this morning, I saw it had reached $47. What do you see as the, the price level that will galvanize offshore exploration E&P investment on a large scale that will bring the offshore marine industry back? It's a very good question, Chris. I think it is less the oil price that we need to have a strong stability on. It is more the time from oil and gas to market. I think those supply lines, that's the important part here and that we can get quickly to market. You can produce it relatively modestly in terms of cost. I think those are the important elements here. The oil price will will uh, will shift, I mean, up and down. I think 47 is a very strong level for most offshore assets, but it's the sustainability of the oil fields that is important. Because once you see the mega projects coming in, into the market that many of the offshore companies have benefited from in the past, those will be fewer and far between. So it is really the opportunity for the service companies to get closer to the oil majors to create value maybe in a shorter term, because we need to be agile. It's clear that the renewable side of things are moving and it should move. We all want that. 
But we also have to be realistic that we need a global trade and we need to fuel the global trade. And the fossil economies are playing a big part of that. But I think the cycles will become shorter. And it's very difficult for any oil company to progress a 30-year plan. You're probably going to see more 10- and 15-year plans. That's very good. V-Ships has a long long-standing relationship with the cruise industry, going back way to the founder of the company, Mr. Vlasov. The cruise industry obviously has been impacted as much as any sector by the pandemic. But I sense that there is huge pent-up demand for what is a universally popular product. How do you see the next phase for the cruise industry working out? If we start by just agreeing that 71% of this beautiful planet is water, and you have some some incredible boats that has been built for leisure around the world that sits in the ports, not really uh, conducting the business that they were born to conduct, then it's clear that there is a very big pent-up demand in the whole cruise business. I think the way we speak to our clients and, and we see the, the consumers of the cruise industry, they want to get back on our vessels. They want to get back out sailing. Uh, they want to have that experience. So now it's, it's, of course, a massive cash drain on our clients, and they need very, very strong hearts and balance sheets to sustain this. We are supporting them in being ready in ensuring that the vessels will be, will, will be ready. We have learned a lot from the last 12 months on how to manage crew changes, how to manage safe catering, how to manage movement with crews around the world. I mean, we, we probably have the benefit that we are quite global uh, entity and, and therefore we have learned from all the regions of the world. And they, of course, have all their various ways of getting through this. But, but joined to everybody is that we want to get back at it. And if there's one thing that I know about the human race is that we are fundamentally good at coming out of situations like this. And so the cruise industry are ready. We are ready to support them. I think they will bounce back stronger than what we can see right now. See, historically, the pendulum always swings too much on either side. And so people who doomed the cruise industry six months ago, I think they can see now we are coming out of it. There is a fatigue in the situation with COVID. We need to sustain it. We need to wait for the vaccine. We need to ensure that the right people get the vaccines at the right time. We need to prioritize our crews. We need to prioritize the people that are in the service industry so that we can get our economy, also the leisure economy, back on track. I think that's incumbent on our leaders. And that would be my my sort of quiet ambition vis-a-vis the, the regulators and governments is that ensure that the people in the service industry are getting priority. That's very important. Rene, you mentioned there the issue of crew transfers, and this, of course, has become such a massive issue, which has actually cut through to attract the attention of the general public and the general media in a way that most shipping stories do not. Sitting where you sit in uh, V Group, this is a massive issue clearly for you. What do you think are the lessons that can and should be learned from the experiences of the last four or five months? in terms of ensuring that this can never happen again? That's a great question. Nothing has been business as usual, as I mentioned earlier. And I, and I believe that our company have shown resilience and, and most companies have shown resilience and a very quick adaptation to the situation. I mean, in WeGroup, we have been helped by our global footprint, as I mentioned just before. And, and we have like one platform that we conduct our business from and have actually embedded a lot of technologies already in the business. And that assists us in the transparency and 
how to track our crew and, and certainly the lack of, of ability to, to change out the crew. So I think the whole 2020 has forced the industry to review our practices. And I predict that we will not easily return to, to some of the more dated principles that was conducted in shipping. I mean, we are one of the oldest industries in the, in the world. I mean, some of our principles and some of our industry standards dates back to tall ships and wooden hulls and so on. So I do believe that there is a lot we can learn and certainly also on the, on the crew side. Um, but as you also uh, state very clearly, Chris, one of the costs of all this disruption has been our seafarers repatriation crises and, um, and the availability of staff. Uh, and it remains to this day uh, a key issue to be understood and, and certainly solved. Uh, we have come far and, and we as a company has broken in almost to single ditches in terms of overdue relief, but that's still a high number. So if I had a hat on, as I'm sitting here in, in front of you, I would raise it in the highest respect for the, for the stamina shown by all seafarers across all companies in, in shipping. And of course, also their colleagues ashore, but, but the seafarers have really been through a, a lot. Now, if you think about what can we do, I mean, uh, there has been a lot of high level requests to UN agencies and, and industry associations to classify seafarers as key workers. And, and, and I believe I mentioned that when you asked me about the cruise industry, I think this is critical now that we acknowledge that the workers that are sort of working on the 71% of our land mass here in the uh, water mass, I should say, here in the world, are being actually labeled as critical workers. And if it, it has not been shown before, certainly it has been shown in 2020. So we need to fast track an ability to, um, to get our seafarers back to shore where they have been overdue and getting seafarers back out to work because it is as tough for the seafarers sitting ashore not being able to get out. So I think that's a critical importance that we all lobby best possible to, to governments and, and, and regulators for them to understand, not criticizing, but they need to understand. And from there on, they need to adapt laws and regulations to uh, assist getting an international key worker status. I think that's crucial that we get that on the agenda of everybody. The way I sort of think about, so how could it be done is that you know, we all have vaccination passports when we travel to places that have specific illnesses. And why not introduce a, a vaccination passport for COVID? And, and I'm sure such a paperwork could easily be used should we have pandemics in the future. I think everybody now has come to the realization that coming out of this, we need to ensure that we have all the processes in place and all the business preparedness for any such situation in the future. So that we are not, again, surprised by having a pandemic. We are basically globally completely linked. And a city in China is, is, is as close to the city where I'm sitting in, you know, as the neighbor city when I grew up. That's just the way it is. So I think it's incumbent on, on the governments to try and ensure that we get the right paperwork in place for the people that has been in harm's way in terms of uh, repatriation. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very, very important for us. And then... I would like to use this opportunity, Chris, to underscore the fact that mental well-being is something that we, we cannot not talk about. And so mental well-being for our dear colleagues at sea, but certainly also the mental well-being of people sitting in front of, of machines trying to, to figure out how to keep the lights on for the global economy and shipping, as I mentioned, ports, logistics, is a key component of that. So we need to be respectful of the mental well-being as well is very important. 
As the industry emerges from the full impact of the pandemic, the issue of climate change, of course, has not gone away. And if anything, 2021 will be a year when it comes even more high profile. The Biden administration, quite clearly, COP26 in Glasgow in November, all of these issues will reinforce public engagement with the issue of climate change. So looking broadly at the record of industry engagement with this issue. How would you assess it thus far, Rennie? And what do you hope to see in terms of movement that will actually move the industry quickly towards achieving its goals on decarbonisation? Thank you, Chris. That's, of course, a, a very, very hot topic, I think, to any business leader these days. I do believe that we need to see these mega trends beyond the individual politician of the day or in the context of their period in office, regardless of where our sympathies lie. I believe the route to a balanced environment discussion is where regulators, NGOs, I can think of private enterprises are entwined. Sort of we accept to build frameworks where we are all traveling towards a zero uh, footprint also become good business. I am very, very clear uh, that the best sustainable challenge and coming out of this challenge is that we make a good business out of it at the same time. I think it, they can work hand to hand in terms of the not for profit and certainly also for profit. But we need to go for the long haul here. Uh, I think some large companies has already made very ambitious pledges towards zero 2050. Um, and I think equally, some have commenced sort of separate institutions that I can think of, of the Merce McKinney uh, Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping that I think was launched some years ago. And I see these initiatives are the groundswell that we need. I mean, there, there are so many companies that, that goes into to this now. This was but one project. I think that's very, very important. It's, of course, also important that the IMO is gathering some serious momentum in getting involved in, in the whole reduction of, of emissions. And they should become even more ambitious, but they should, beyond everything, work together with the companies and ensure that we have the right sustainable aspects to, to get to a, a, a zero uh, carbon shipping. I mean, today, if I think about our company and, and, and how we're trying to look around the corner in, of the future, this would be one of our key pillars. I mean, we need to create a business environment where environment as a strategy is playing a key role. We are having so many various ship types and clients in our portfolio and humbly so. And all of those, we need to be a little part of their ambition to, to zero emissions. By then, of course, we need to adapt our toolbox to be able to assist. I think we have a unique ability to look at the data that we are gathering when we service our clients and work across both the older ship types, the newer ship types, and partnering with, with our clients. So probably data, I know it's an expression that we all uh, probably like to use a little bit too much, but here data is really, really important, Chris, because you have the temperature, particularly speaking, on the industry by looking across all these various segments. And I think those who can actually use that proactively to come up with strategies around better fuel economies and so on are the companies of the future. Structurally, and currently the world shipping capacity, 40% of it is committed to energy transportation, as we know. I mean, that's, that's the starting point. But as the world moves further and further down the route of renewables, that's going to create 
a dramatic change in the pattern of demand for particular vessel types. How will the industry cope with that change? What do you see as being some of the structural shifts that will be necessary to accommodate that? Yeah, that's the million dollar or billion dollar question, probably. I think the popular opinion, um, I think I mentioned that earlier, is that the pendulum always swings a little bit too much in, in, in either direction. And, and so I'm a strong believer in, in getting a balance into these conversations. We will need a very robust combination of fossil fuels and renewable sources for the foreseeable future. And so I think once people accept that, they can start putting in sustainable strategies. Fossil fuels are not going away tomorrow. I would like coal to go away tomorrow for sure, because that's probably uh, one of the biggest uh, pollutants uh, in, in the world today. But I do believe that the way that we are we are consuming uh, sort of some of the other uh, fossil fuels, both oil and gas, is, is probably better than it was 20 years ago. But of course, it's not something of, for the future. So the wise owners uh, will see adapting opportunities so that they can adapt to new businesses. They can transition sort of naturally over a period of time. Those are the ones who can see around the corner and there. They will be better placed. While, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, when you asked me about offshore, those stuck in the past, I, I think they will meet troubled times. So you can talk about hydrogen. So if you talk about fuels, you can talk about hydrogen, ammonia, LNG, and so on. They will all play a part. I'm not going to lay a wisdom of which of these fuels are going to win. They all have strengths and weaknesses of their own. But it is clear that we will see a completely different fuel mix in the future. And I think that's what we have learned from all the conversation with the big oil and gas corporations that I've had, is that the supply systems and the supply chains will change, and we need to adapt our ships and so on to that. Now, I think what is very, very important is that the shipping and logistic chains simply can't sustain these challenges alone. So in fairness, Chris, today consumers expect to have a pair of sneakers produced in one part of the world, delivered in another, and again, last mile within the click of a button at ever competitive prices, if you think about it, while at the same time, they ask for zero emissions with another click of the button. So we need balance, and I actually opine that consumers need to be a much bigger part of the solution, and hence the cost of this solution. So, you know, spreading all the same pair of sneakers is likely not going to change the pattern dramatically when you look at the cost, but some of that cost has to be spread over those uh, infamous uh, sneakers. I do think consumers has a big role to play here. Shipping and the whole logistics infrastructure cannot foot the bill alone. And I think that's one of the keys to seeing a change in the shipping infrastructure. And so, again, we, we are having conversations with our clients to take a specific issue on, on fuel and fuel economy and, and, and what kind of footprint they should have over the coming years. And, and we will, of course, continue supporting them. But I do believe in balance. I don't believe there is one fuel that necessarily will win right now. But I'm sure in the future, we will find out. We probably need to invest a little bit across the board. You mentioned a number of other structural changes which the industry is bound to experience going forward. I mean, we've uh, touched upon consolidation, corporatization, and uh, you know the fully integrated logistics system where the role of the shipping company changes significantly in the future, no doubt. How does the role of the third-party ship management company fit into this new world? This is a great question. If I had a real crystal ball, I would outline exactly how that would play out. <laughs> but in the absence, I will, I will dare to give you a, a couple of, of opinions, uh, Chris. I think if I look 
again, back to the transformation, and I'll come to the third-party manager in a minute. Sort of the transformation we performed in, in my former company, as you asked me before we went on here, was exactly towards an integrated platform with an ability to deliver more services up the value chain, because I fundamentally believed that we needed to do more with the clientele we had in our ecosystem. So today, you similarly, you see the larger container and infrastructure companies driving the same agenda of total logistics. It was a logistics company that bought my former company, and, and, and you see many of the very big container uh, shipping lines as well transforming themselves into more of a total service and value chain deliverable. And I think that's that's exactly where they should be. Uh, so I think that the, the consolidation, as you mentioned, will be driven by the right access to data technologies and cost optimization. I predict partnering and acquisitions across those value chain you will see, but you may actually see partnerings that we didn't see hitherto. You will see partnering that you didn't believe could and should happen, but those are probably the value propositions. Some will fail, but we should applaud them for trying. Some will certainly become winners of the future, and that's the whole essence of seeing around the corner. So I think that's in general, specifically for us in, in third-party management, in general, you know, the outsource part of the shipping industry balances around 20% of the global fleets. It's not a m massive amount of vessels, and that has been actually quite stable. Now, if you pre-COVID-19 didn't have partnering towards outsourcing on the agenda, I humbly believe that many companies would and should revisit such discussions in a post-COVID-19 environment. I know I would if I if I take my, my old ship owning hat on, because the world has moved, and I think the economies of scale that the ship manager can deliver certainly should be appealing to many shipping companies, maybe not everybody, but I would certainly be in, enthused to have the conversation. It's an industry that remains very fragmented. I'm, I'm getting, of course, to, to know it much, much better as, as I speak to people and clients and competitors um, very frequently now. And it, it is very fragmented, and it's focused on regional or or sort of technical fleet specifics. So I think it, it should be a perfect partner for the for the total value chain, as we talked about earlier, where economies of scale of, of larger feeds can be achieved without necessarily jeopardizing those commercial strategies that the individual owners, they actually have. So driving scale would, would certainly benefit owners, and it is something that we would be keen to take part of. And for sure, having that scale and seafarers under fewer umbrellas would also assist not only the repatriation, as we spoke about earlier, but the whole route to zero emission. I mean, think about it, Chris. If you can harvest all those data across bigger fleets and optimize where necessary, I actually think that the, that the ship manager can play a, a much bigger role, and probably we should play a much bigger role together with our clients. So that's certainly something that, that I would like to participate in at an industry level. And I would certainly be encouraging V-Group to have it as one of our sort of strategic pillars. So I don't think consolidation can, of course, deliver on some of these objectives up there. But I think it's not necessarily the only tool in the box. You mentioned new and unexpected partnerships in the industry. Are you uh, prepared to give me a couple of examples of what you might mean by that? So I can think of, of one that, that we did in Topaz with General Electric that was maybe out of the left flank. I mean, they, they were very, very good at windmills and they were very good at trains in terms of the whole sort of understanding of Internet of Things and so on. And we convinced them that why shouldn't we look at shipping? I mean, 
Internet of Things on ships should should be as uh, important uh, than uh, as it is for for windmills and and trains and so on. And you know, we made a partnership with them. It wouldn't have been logical a couple of years before, but those are the things that I think should drive our our conversation going forward. You know, I think we have a lot of traditional ways of doing things, Chris. I remember we were combating cost of communicating uh, with our vessels. And of course, this is very important for us. So we try to figure out how can we disrupt that very, very expensive um, situation. And, and we started conversations with, with mobile phone companies because they should be the best with the infrastructure at, at hand. And, and that also assisted. So I think, you know, you should expect traditional shipping companies going into partnership with big data, with things that you haven't thought about today, but that will drive the end game of having lower costs and an ability to continue making money of our business because, hey, this is a costly affair to support the global economies and the global trade. To my point on, on the sneakers earlier, I think all our consumers that expect a perpetual uh, lower pricing and at the same time assisting the zero emission, I think we need to find a balance here. Shipping companies and logistics cannot continue footing the bill alone. We need to see a little bit of a consumer participation. And maybe that's another partnership where we are better at explaining the story of what we actually do for the global economy. I know when I was living in Mali many, many moons ago, I was personally so satisfied that we could deliver wheat flour up to the Timbuktu area uh, together with World Food Program, just because we had a logistics chain up there. So shipping and logistics are making a difference that matters to the world economy. Everybody has seen that under COVID. So I think those partnerships and the recognition of where shipping should be, that's very important. You talk about global trade, and I saw The Economist magazine just last month discussing whether globalization as, as we know it is now in retreat and that we're going to see a regionalization pattern of trade developing for a whole range of reasons. Is that your view? And if so, what is the likely impact on ton mile demand and the shipping industry generally? I like The Economist as well. There, there's a great, uh, it's a great paper. I think it goes too far to say that, you know, anti-globalization will take its whole, yes, it may take its whole for a short period, depending on, on who is in office, in which country and in, 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 in which trade lane. Um, so I believe in a globalized world. I think it's best for everybody. I do believe there will be regional agendas that may serve better in a given time, uh, in a given moment in time. Um, but I'm certainly a, a global uh, person. I can see what globalization is, is doing for this world. So an anti-globalization agenda, I, I don't believe in. I think there will be snippets of it. But in the long haul, many moons from now, globalization has to win for, for many, many reasons. And, and I am and I, and I, a big believer in that. If you think about the challenges we have right now, I mean, the human race will fundamentally find a way out of this true innovation. And, you know, we spoke about data, but with the current availability of IA and, and machine learning, this will only be exponential. So there will be challenges for, at a regional level, but I think the mega trends will continue driving an optimized supply chain globally. And that will continue delivering opportunities in trade rather than necessarily a political or, or, or a regional uh, wish. So yeah, periodically there will be disruption and we will adapt. But long term, I think the Darwin theory, Chris, will probably also uh, rule here amongst companies and routes. They will survive. Rene, I believe you've been in this industry now for around 25 years. 
And in that time, you've seen a huge amount of change. So I'd like to ask you, if you think back over those 25 years, which has been the most significant change that you've seen for the better, and also which for the worse? If I just give you the, the sort of list as they come in my head, I, I think starting from probably the reemergence of, of Asia as a true power hub of trade. I mean, when I started, China was slowly and carefully reopening its its country for renewed trade. I think the expansion of the European Union, I mean, I've seen that as well coming on. I think very early on in my career, you had the economic union starting and, and so forth. Then probably Africa as really a global hub of, of commodities, but also where where a lot of that, that trade went back to Africa itself and it didn't just remain on, on, on old hands. Then maybe some of the less so fortunate things, I think there's been a surge in piracy at some regional hotspots, and, and some of it is under control, some of it unfortunately continues. Um, the IT bubble that burst and, and sort of the global financial crisis some years later and, and, and global terrorism, of course, what that has done. Uh, I remember sitting at IMB when, when 2001 happened. I think we all remember where we sat there. So those are some of the things that maybe not been the most positive thing. But I think, you know, probably one of the greatest things that are happening right now is the route to zero emissions and rewilding the planet. I mean, it's likely the two most prominent challenges. And I think shipping actually plays a huge role in certainly the the, the zero emissions. Uh, but I'm sure as we all look around us, uh, we need to ensure that we look after this fantastic place that we are living and give it onto our children and children's children. And I think that's probably the two uh, I would end with. Uh, the, those are the two biggest challenges facing us right now, the zero emissions and rewilding of the planet. And and, um, and certainly that's something that I'm happy to be part of in my next 25 years. <laughs> that was going to be my next question, uh, Rene, which is, which is quite simply this. If you had your time over again, you were starting out, would you recommend to yourself a career in shipping, knowing what you know? Yes, I would do it all again. The young people are generally more informed and with faster access to data than we were at that time when I started at any point of time in the history, which also may be overwhelming, by the way. You can have too much information as well. As I mentioned just before, we have a chance to impact one of the greatest challenges, which is really the environmental crisis and the route to emission and rewilding. And I think if you can play a part in that by being part of the shipping industry, which is really the bedrock if you think about it, of, of global economy, those are change makers. And, you know, you can actually participate in making a difference that matters. I, I know some of the things that I have participated in, I'm proud to explain my kids the impact that is having from building a electrical powered vessels and thinking about how we can better manage fuels and so on. I certainly am very happy in explaining that to my kids and, and being part of shipping. So I would do it all over again. It must be fantastic for any seafarer, actually, to, to stand on the bow of the ship and look at new horizons coming up, even though it, it's very smart new vessels and not like in the old days. But yeah, certainly. This is an industry full of uh, powerful, visionary individuals. And you know the names as well as I do of the prominent people who've played a role in the industry over 25 years. If you were to pick out just one of them who you regard as an exemplar for the industry going forward, who would it be? You would say afterwards, oh, Rene, you know, you put that on the 11 meter spot and that was ideal for you to say, but I, I will actually say the late Mr. Moller from, from AP Moller Maersk. And, you know, 
he was one of the pioneers to, together at that time with his partner, uh, Pierre Yarns, in reinvesting in China and in India and, and, and by and large across Africa, where few others actually dared. Maybe not everybody knows, but he was a big supporter of global trade and, 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 and seafarers generally. I mean, it was very, very important for the company to look after our seafarers. The company built a whole village for, for pensioned seafarers in Denmark and, and a lot of training facilities top notch, which which was really for, for both the well-being and, and education of seafarers. And maybe also a little is known about how much you focused on data. I don't know whether you're aware, Chris, but actually up through the 80s, we had a, in AP Muller, we had a company called Merce Data and, and Mr. Muller was one of the first foreign people sitting on IBM. That's relevant today when you think about it. So if you really think about pioneers and how we use data in, in Merce, where I grew up and had my 18 years, I think certainly he is a pioneer in many of the things he did. And the, why I'm mentioning him is that he had an ability to look around corners. And I think it's incumbent on us leaders to be able to look around corners and sometimes dare. Do we always get it right? Absolutely not. But certainly he got, and the company that, and the people that collaborated with him got a lot right. And on that, including uh, having a sustainable fleet. I mean, there was a lot of money going into innovating better ways of building, safer way of running, and more efficient way of, of fueling our ships in AP Mahler. So um, he would certainly be the one I, I would pick up. And in terms of leadership, what are the qualities for the leaders of the industry in the next decade or two decades that you think are the most important? That's another uh, good question. So I will start with where I ended, is that the ability to look around corners and having the wherewithal of, of doing it and by the way, being allowed to do it by your board, that's also very important for a leader that they have the support in, in doing this. Many years ago, I was discussing what are the qualities of a good leader with another shipping CEO that I hold dear, Jesper Locke, uh, when we worked together in Switzerland. And we came up with three sort of, what should you actually have as sort of ingredients to be a leader? And, and we came up with the, the, with the three of, of situational awareness, a very, very solid judgment, and then robust empathy. I mean, if you have those three in equal doses, you can't live with not one of them not being there. I think those are the three elements of, of, of being a very, very good leader. And as we know, all of us in shipping, things will go wrong, but you should be, uh, you should be measured on your ability to manage it wisely and with a good dose of situation awareness, judgment and empathy. So those would probably be, uh, be the, the acronyms. And certainly I will continue to use that in my, in my life with WeGroup, which, you know, I'm, I'm looking much forward to all the, the hours I have ahead of me with, with all those great colleagues and, and everybody that we touch in the shipping industry, Chris, including yourself. Thank you for listening to this Learning from Leaders podcast from Sea Trade Maritime. You've been listening to V Group CEO Rene Colford Olson talking about a wide range of topics climate change, structural changes in the industry, regionalization, its importance for shipping demand, and of course, the impact of the exceptional circumstances of the year 2020 on the industry across the board. Don't forget, 
If you like this podcast, you can listen to more in the Learning from Leaders series online, as well as a whole host of additional on-demand podcasts, webinars, and white papers at ctrade-maritime.com. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and we'll see you soon.